It's July 15th, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Uh, before we move on to the interview, I wanted to mention a couple of things that I, th- I think would be of interest to the listeners out there. Uh, the first is about another website, another podcast that focuses on photography, and it's called The Radiant Vista, which you can find at www.radiantvista.com. And it's a great resource for photography, and the best one of the best things about it is that it's free, but it's... It's a priceless resource that the uh, the crew there have provided to any of us with an internet connection and a passion for photography. But uh, what I especially wanted to mention was the last episode of their podcast, episode 12, that, which was released back on July 8th. And it was called Fear of the Rules or Fear Itself. And it was basically a, a, an essay about... Uh, by Craig Tanner, who's one of the people responsible for the candid frame about the whole concept of why we create art, what gets considered art, not only by our fellow photographers, but the world at large. And it was just a fascinating, um, just a fascinating uh, discussion of a lot of concepts, concepts that I've been thinking about recently, but I had never heard it so concisely uh, presented as Craig did. On this episode, so if you have any interest in photography beyond you know just snapping a picture to you every once in a while, um, take a listen to this episode. I think it'll inspire you. It will make you think. Um, and while you're there, take advantage of all the different resources that they have available there for you. Um, I can't say enough about it. And the other thing is sort of self-referential. Um, as some of you may know, I am associate editor for Outdoor Photographer Magazine, and I usually don't talk much about that, but I had written an article back in July that I've gotten some good response uh, about, and a friend of mine mentioned, well, if you're getting a good response about it, people out there might want to read it. And and luckily, even if you aren't a subscriber to Outdoor Photographer Magazine, you can find the article on their site at outdoorphotographer.com, and it's called Light on the Landscape. And you'll find it in the bottom of their homepage currently, but it came out in the July issue. And uh, in it, I just talked about how I re- kind of rediscovered my passion for photography when I discovered the importance of light and uh, or rediscovered the importance of light in my image making. And I think that uh, for many people, uh, when they read the article, they'll probably relate very much to, to that experience. And hopefully it'll, it may inspire you to look at the world in a slightly different way. So um, let's move on to the interview. And this interview is uh, I've been looking forward to for a while. Uh, a lot of the photographers that I try to uh, interview for the show are very busy people. So sometimes it can be quite a, quite a job to you know, nail it down a, a time so we can speak to, uh, so I can speak to them. And um, I'm finally happy to, I'm happy to say that I finally got the opportunity to interview Moose Peterson. And um, for those of you who don't know, Moose Peterson is a very accomplished wildlife and outdoor photographer 
who is not only a fantastic photographer, but he's also a wonderful educator. And he teaches a series of workshops. Uh, some Nikon shooters may know him from the uh, Nikon system handbook uh, that has been printed for the last God knows how many years, talking about the complete Nikon system. But Moose Peterson is more than you know a book about Nikon gear. He is a photographer who has really used his camera in a very special way. He's not just a photographer who likes to go out and make a pretty pictures that he can sell for someone to hang on the wall or, or someone who just wants to create books just for the sake of satisfying his own ego. He's really been using the camera to make people aware of what's happening um, with wildlife, particularly endangered species and the landscape. He's been a real advocate um, for, for these things. And he's been working with biologists and, and different, different advocacy groups in order to ensure that some of the habitats that we all enjoy photographing in and visiting uh, exist years from now and that the creatures that inhabit them are still around to be photographed, to be appreciated, and to just live. Um, Moose is just, he's a great photographer, and even though it's a, sort of a cliche, he's a great humanitarian. I know that sounds kind of silly, but when you listen to the interview, you'll see that, that he really does care, not just about image making, but about the world that we all live in. And uh, I hope you enjoy the, our interview with Moose Peterson. Well, again, thank you very much for, for taking the time, Moose. It's really great to have a chance to kind of talk to you about your work. I've been following your career since my, my days at Nikon, and it's funny. Uh, going to be uh, uh, really welcome the opportunity to really talk in depth about you and your work. Well, I'm happy to do it. Promoting photography is what we've been doing for almost 30 years here, so that's what we do. Well, how did how did that begin 30 years ago for you? Uh, you, you just mentioned that you were, I guess, doing um, sort of contracting work before. How did how did you know photography and and this uh, specialization in wildlife begin? It just uh, it didn't have any kind of genesis other than the fact that um, I basically decided I was going to go into biology. And I had a good friend who was a biologist said that uh, he knew me well enough that he said it wouldn't work for me because of who I am and I wouldn't be able to deal with one species or the politics. And he said, you better find something else. Hmm. And uh, it just so happened everybody in my family was, sh- was shutter buggers, and I just took it to the next level. It just unfolded. It wasn't any kind of plan or anything else. It's just the way the serendipitous of life happened to take me down the road. How did you end up turning that into the, your profession? A lot of people, you know, start off the very same way that you did, but they primarily do it as, as a hobby, but you've made quite a business for yourself specializing in, in a diver- photographing a diversity of wildlife. How did you make that happen? You know, it's really a truly a, a, a good question, and I wish I had a solid answer for people because it's very common. But in all honesty, it just, we were very fortunate, point blank. Um, we've been fortunate to work with great people, great biologists. Um, we work uh, hard along hours. So I was taught up to uh, work hard so I could play hard. And uh, we just have uh, stuck it out. Now, the one thing that most people probably don't understand about this uh, thing called photography is that it is a, a slow and easy kind of wins the race thing. It's not a, you don't do it in five or ten years. It takes time. There's just, it just, 
takes time. So you just keep on moving forward. Yeah, in in you know, in seeing your site, your website, I see that one of the things that immediately kind of differentiates you is that it's not just Moose Peterson photography; it's Moose Peterson wildlife research photography. Um, That's right. Kind of explain the, the the idea behind that. Well, the bottom line is the work that uh, we. When I say we, I'm talking about my wife Sharon and myself because. She's been in it since day one with me. She's a big part of it. Uh, she runs the the vast majority of the business side of the of the, the business, and um, we are native Californians. And uh, we grew up with with families and parents who were always in the outdoors, and we saw a lot of places that we enjoy starting to disappear. So we wanted to do something. It was kind of um, just life said we needed to get involved. Now, to do that, it required um, being very uh, creative with the income because there's no money. We get paid no money going out and working with all these endangered species. Uh, biologists themselves have almost no budget, let alone anything to pay a photographer. Uh, quite often, in fact, we have to, in one way or another, basically pay for ourselves to be out there uh, and for other parts of it. So. The research part is we work with species. My my longest project has been with Kit Fox. That's been going on now for uh, like 23 years. Uh, so I don't just take portraits. And to do those kind of things, I don't pay bills. I've been creative in doing everything else like you see on that website. So the research part is my work is done in concert with biologists. And we use our cameras and our abilities to record uh, photographically data that can't be uh, recorded any other way scientifically. It's verification uh, of 100% proof kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is really what is the crutch of the business. And that's why I got to be a Nikon gearhead. Uh, in order to solve the, the technical problems, I had to sit there and find the tools that will allow me to, to capture images that the biologists require for their work without sacrificing the safety of those critters. So that's how, like I say, it was not planned. It was serendipitous. The whole thing just um, uh, just came about. Yeah, that's a, that's a big aspect of, of your focus on, on, on the technology that you use to create the images. Uh, it's not just about you know, getting a, a good shot. It's being able to document a, a behavior and, and the impact of of man on the environment and you and you look at equipment in terms of how can I you know navigate all the obstacles in, in order to be able to create these images that you know play such an important role in the in the conservation of not only the land but the animals themselves it is yeah it's very it's very very important you know it's um not to put anybody down but in the in the, in the environment of the, web, of the web the way people go they've lost the the, the the point of view that this camera gear is all tools. Uh, it's it's all tools. Uh, I, I love people with the digital age, for example. Um, there was a time not too long ago I was the only wild photographer out there shooting digital. And you can go on the web and find some of these old things that people said I was nuts going digital. Who would ever go digital? Okay. And now it's gone full circle, and I'm nuts uh, for doing some of the things I do now with digital. And it's we're always pushing the envelope here at WRP. Um, we, 
in me in particular, I'm always looking for new things, stuff that a lot of times the public hasn't heard about, new possible tools that will point blank allow me to do what I need to do behind the camera to work with these species. At the same time, time is a huge factor. Uh, most folks don't understand that I have two sons, uh, both in college now. My family has always come first, has for the last 20 years. So they say, well, how do you get all those things done? They don't realize that my first priority is my family, and the business gets shoehorned in. So a lot of technology I use for the time factor. I need the time. How did you find – can you give me an example of how – your use of digital provided you an opportunity to document wildlife in a way that wasn't, wouldn't have been possible with, with you, your use of film. Well, my, the, 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 what convinced me that digital was the only way to go was a project I did with a D1 uh, back in, in April of 2000. And I was working with the Sam King Kit Fox, one of my pet projects. And it was in a, a, a sump in Bakersfield. A sump is a big hole in the ground where run water, runoff water from the, the homes can, can go and settle back into the ground. And the kid foxes have, have kind of uh, evolved, for lack of better terms, into an urban kid fox and deal with homes. And this one particular den site, a nail den site, was in one of these sumps. Well, it was... Uh, one of those lovely days in, 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 in Bakersfield, about 102 tons of smog. And I was sitting in about three inches of water in the bottom of the sump. It smells, it's hot, it's humid. And about 10 feet in front of me is this natal den. Um, we know it's there because the female, the vixen, has a telemetry collar around her neck. So we know she's there and we know she has pups. And coincidentally, this, this mother, I had photographed her three years prior when she was a pup. Well, anyway, I was sitting there, and the pups were just a day past four weeks old, which normally they, they don't come out and they don't emerge into the daylight for another 10 days or so. While well, I was there photographing, and all of a sudden I heard some noises, and I looked inside the, the tunnel entrance, and there was one of the pups, and all of a sudden they just emerged in front of me, all four of them. And at that age, we call them fuzz heads because they're just little balls of fuzz. Uh, they came out. And they did basically Kit Fox stuff with the mom uh, and then went back in. Well, I photographed that all with the D1 and all digitally. Now, that night I got back to my hotel room, grabbed a half dozen images, sent it off to various biologists around North America because no one had ever seen Kit Fox that young out of, out of the den like that. And because of that, I had instant uh, information to biologists and had instant feedback from them, questions, things they want me to, to look at for the next day, try to photograph if possible. So that instant information made it possible to take one more small advance towards understanding the biology of this endangered critter. How have your images changed not only the, the awareness of, of the kid foxes in, in, in terms of the behavior, but in terms of, um, you know, actions in terms of being able to preserve them and their habitat? Well, getting information out there is the key. Uh, in order, I mean, people always hear me say I, my goal is to grab heartstrings with my photography, and that's very true. Uh, the only way we can preserve the incredible wild heritage that has been left to us is to educate the public and get them involved 
and preserving it for future generations. Uh, it's very easy for folks to um, put the scapegoat on certain administrations and certain individuals, but those administrations and individuals are only there because the public's lack of getting involved. So getting the photographs out every way, shape, or form, and when it comes to kid process, we've done everything from sit at, um, at Sharon and I sit at fairs and a table, We've been invited with photographs, and we talk to people about kid foxes. Gone to most people don't realize I actually do more presentation slideshows on conservation issues than I do teaching photography. So we get out there, and we and all these images we get them out to the people to get them, in, you know, sucked in to caring for their wild heritage. With the um your your web presence is probably one of the uh, is is a big part of of you know your career, um, but you say my web presence? Yeah, your web presence. Yeah, because I remember you know from back back in the years when I first saw it, and it's grown considerably. I mean, I just checked it out uh, today, and I saw that it had changed. Uh, I guess you have a new web design, but one of the things that you had mentioned is that you were trying to move away from sort of a gear centric. Uh, content into more about the wildlife and the conservation. Did you find that you you yourself were just getting uh, too consumed, or your time was getting too much consumed by by technical things? Well, there's there's a there's, that's a multifaceted answer to that question. Um, first of all, writing about camera care equipment to me is getting really boring. I've been doing it for a long time, and uh, that's one problem. Most people started thinking of me. Well, they haven't for a long time, but for a while they think of me as just as a, a Nikon person, and I'm a photographer. And I wrote about Nikon because it paid the bills so I can go out and take my pictures. So I wanted to get away from that. Uh, but mostly, you know, there's enough people out there who write about the camera gear, whether they do a good job of it or not, it's irrelevant. They write about it. And I want to get people inspired to go out and take pictures, not go out and particularly uh, try a new lens or, or buy a new lens, something like that. Uh, now, that doesn't always work, I mean, but that is my goal is to get people involved in taking photographs. So my website, it's just over 2,000 pages there of information. You add up all the, the PDFs and everything else that's on there. It's 2,000 pages of free information trying to get people revved up to get out behind the camera. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing resource. Um, I've been a regular reader of your, you know, your BT Journal for, for a long time now. And it's just amazing content. Like you said, it's it's so much more than just about, you know, a particular lens or a particular camera. It's so much about education, about the environment, about the wildlife, about have, building a relationship with, uh, with the outdoors that otherwise is, you know, gets broken down into into trophy hunting when it comes to going out there and shooting. And I, I think that you uh, do a great job in terms of telling people to to enjoy the experience of being out there and, and in contact with these animals. Well, I appreciate uh, hearing that. We, uh, we get lots of love notes from folks, and that's why we keep doing it. We even started a blog finally uh, after not wanting to get involved in that bandwagon. We had a thing called Moose News, which was an email newsletter I put out for last, I don't know, five, six years. And... Uh, the problem with that is it, uh, it, you know, it just doesn't work for my time flow. So a blog, you know, I can sit there and put out current information and just throw it up there, and people can read it and, and take it for what it's worth. 
the website's the same thing. I mean, the last thing that, that I want to try to do is create a world for, of moose clones. I'm hoping they'll take the information that's on the website that's pertinent to their style of photography, uh, incorporate those ideas and techniques, and then go out and, uh, and make images that they can come back and share with me and show me the wonders that I know I'll never be able to get to see. I mean, there's, there is so much out there, so much out there that uh, I won't ever get to witness firsthand that I depend on other photographers to bring those, those, those stories and images to me. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the power and the beauty of photography is that you have that opportunity. And now Isn't the, it, though? Yeah, and now with the Internet, it's like you have basically the whole world at your, at your desktop. That's right. That is 100% correct. And, it's, uh, and we're very fortunate. I would wish I, people would spend more time uh, with that rather than uh, some of the, the silly things that people tend to focus on in this industry. In respect to that, in terms of you know locations, you know if you have an opportunity to just have your own time to go out to a particular location and photograph a, a particular subject, what, what what is that and what would it be? My own backyard. Don't go any further. Really? Uh, no, we have uh, we have created our own, you could say, sanctuary in our yard between birds and everything else that. Uh, I don't have to go any further. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I live in the Sierra Mountains. I can uh, go right out, and uh, it's right there for me. But people often uh, ask, what's my favorite subject? And while it might sound like a flippant answer, uh, to be honest with you, my favorite subject is anything that holds still. <laughs> in, in terms of challenges, because like you said before, one of the things about shooting wildlife is, is the fact that, you know, the – Subjects are, aren't often the most cooperative subjects uh, in the world. They don't know that you're there to take their picture, and they don't, you know, pose and smile. Uh, but can you tell, give me uh, an example of a, of a really tough situation that you had in terms of capturing an image, how you managed to, you know, pull a, a great image uh, out of a difficult circumstance? Well, the funny thing is what people think of as a great image um, that word great is not the same as I think of great. For example, some people think of a great as something you put on the wall, people are going to buy lots of prints of, for example. And for me, a great image is one where I had to overcome a lot of biological and technical challenges in order to get that image, you know, captured. And some of the greatest challenges are some of the smallest subjects. Uh, I, we have for quite a while been photographing all the small mammals of California. I'm talking about mice and shrews and kangaroo rats, all these little guys that there are some places all over. Um, three species in our files are extinct. The only place you will see them is in our files, mm. uh, the last one being the Santa Cruz kangaroo rat that went extinct about 18 months ago. We're the only one to photograph it. Uh, getting out and with that kind of biological technical challenge, uh, that is my greatest rewards and the greatest fun and uh, to me, some of my greatest images. Of course, people look at that and they go, well, that's just a mouse. Well, yeah, that's true in a sense. But to me, that's, that's the greatest images. And that speaks to the importance of, of research ahead of time and becoming f very familiar with your subject even before you get out there and, and, you know, and screw the lens onto the camera. I mean, without that knowledge, you're really not going to have much chance, uh, if any, to be able to capture those kind of images. That is very true. That's why I have always 
have always credited my success to the biologists that I've worked with some from the very beginning. Uh, very fortunate since day one that I have worked with uh, and truly the, some of the world's best biologists. They have taken me under the wing. They have taught me all the biology I know. I've never taken one class of biology, not one. Mm-hmm. They have uh, shared it all with me, and fortunately, uh, they are my eyes out there. Uh, it's quite often that I get a phone call, and I'm in the truck driving somewhere uh, to get a photograph. Great example was uh, the very end of uh, March, had to go over to the Central Valley to photograph the riparian brush rabbit. Uh, we went over there, spent uh, about six hours, found one, photographed it. Uh, three days later, the floods came through there, and the whole population was walked, wiped out. Oh, okay. So that's kind of one of the things that we do. We, we kind of uh, on call to do that kind of stuff. And that's what we've done for, for almost 30 years. We get a phone call. Uh, something's been found that you know hasn't been seen, like the Fresno kangaroo rat. Uh, was thought to be extinct. One was found. I was there and photographed it. Hasn't been found since. Hmm. So that's it. It doesn't pay bills. It's no. It's not glamorous. It's not what you know. Uh, no magazine writes about. It's just one of the things that we think that we should do, and we we we, we go out and do it. Well, tapping into the resource of the of the local biologist is probably a great way for photographers to gain a level of knowledge and an opportunity to photograph things that they wouldn't otherwise. If people, you know, are interested in, in doing similar work within their own communities, how do you recommend that they find, you know, a, a biologist of that? That Well, you know, I, I've written a lot about that. Uh, my last uh, book called uh, Getting Started in the Field has a whole chapter on working with biologists. Many issues of our BT Journal talk about working with biologists. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I can just paraphrase in a couple of sentences and, and would do anybody any good. Had to understand quite a bit about it. So I would, you know, go to our website, uh, go to the library and look at the books. Uh, the information is there and the biologists are out there and they need photographers. They need that expertise. You've been you teach a lot of a lot of workshops and do a lot of presentations in photography. How have you seen um, the audience change in terms of not only in terms of being as their skills of photographers, but more importantly, their awareness and the concern with with wildlife and the environment. Well, I have um, in actuality not been teaching any kind of "quote unquote" wildlife workshops for the last couple of years. I, I did safaris for twenty years, and I stopped doing them a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. We do do the digital landscape workshop series, and that's strictly landscape. That's not wildlife involved. But the folks that come to those classes are, besides, very interested in learning both the behind the camera as well as the computer stuff, but also understanding the importance of that landscape and its its uh, inhabitants to the overall picture that we call North America and and the wildlife. So their awareness. But then again, we're kind of like preaching to the choir. I'm hoping to take those people that come, and I hope they go back and they they find some other folks kind of infect them and kind of spread it on, so we kind of in, increase the audience and the uh, awareness as well as the uh, uh, involvement in preserving things. But 
uh, on a, or I hate to be on a sour note, but personally I find I found the public the last three to five years uh, getting less and less involved in preserving the wild heritage. It's it's not a good thing. Yeah, because it's, it's so it's it's such a crucial time right now. You know, with such, so much development threatening a lot of even public lands, uh, it's it's really key that people become aware of, of what's going on and what they stand to lose if they just stand by and, and don't and don't do anything. I'm afraid that's true. Very true. You don't describe yourself typically as a landscape photographer, but we'll see that. Nope. that we'll see that there. A lot of your images, particularly on wide shot, are quite good. I, I really liked uh, some of the stuff that you did uh, in Alaska. So, um, tell me about the fact that even though you don't see yourself as a landscape photographer, how you approach it um, as a result of all your experience doing the, the other type of photography. Well, I've been doing uh, landscapes, what we call location photography, since day one. The critters that we work with most of the time live in a very special niche, uh, a habitat that's unique. So recording and, and documenting that landscape, that habitat, is just as important as the critter. So when I look at and when I go after landscapes, uh, my own personal thing is that I'm trying to tell a story that's, that's in that landscape, uh, what makes it unique or special, uh, maybe why it should be preserved. Uh, I'm not a, a black environmentalist. In other words, the, my photographs as well as my writing are all on a positive note. People don't realize that um, you know there's enough negativity out there. I don't need and don't want to add to it. So I uh, personally always have looked at the positive side, and that comes across in my, my photography. So I have a passion for the landscape, uh, be it Alaska or California or any other places. Most of the time, when I look at the landscape, I know the stories behind it, uh, biological, and a lot is, is, is historical. Um, I'm a real history buff, starting about the 1800s to the 1920s or so, the Western expansion. I actually travel around with a, a, a GPS unit in my truck, and I have all the ancient topos loaded in it. So when I drive around, I actually see uh, on the topos the landscape that used to be. Uh, it's kind of fun going through Los Angeles and looking at and realizing that uh, all those skyscrapers stuff, what used to be there. Mm. Well, I don't often um, ask uh, technical questions, but I know that you have literally hundreds of thousands of images, both recorded on film and digital. And I'm curious to know how, how you manage all, all of those uh, all of those images, keeping catalogs <laughs> organized. I, I, I can only imagine that it must be a job in itself. It actually is not that bad. We have 320,000 uh, conventional images. Those are in uh, 10 Fodra filing cabinets. And then we have, um, I don't know the number, but right now I'm running six one-terabyte drives for my digital files. Uh, those are strictly original digital files. The alphanumeric system for each one, because each one has to have its own unique number for copyright, is the is the system I came up with day one? Uh, we never changed it. The actual mechanics of it, I use my own software called Digital Pro, which organizes all my digital files. Slide files are uh, 
organized in exact same manner, except for they're in a physical file drawer where digital files are on a hard drive. But they're all exactly filed the same way, under the same categories, same same names. So anybody who comes in the office can find either the conventional or digital image without any uh, magic ID cards or databases or anything like that. It's very cut and dry, very simple. I see that you uh, you sell a lot of your your prints and they're available for purchase uh, online and that you uh, produce them on your own inkjet printer. Um, um, how has your experience been producing prints on on an inkjet printer, particularly older images that you shot on on Chrome? What was what's what's that experience been for you? Because before, if it was on Chrome, you only had a sort of limited limited output options, but now you have the inkjet printers with a variety of different papers and surfaces. How has your own experience of your own images, particularly your own images, changed as a result of using this technology? Well, I was, I've was i been very fortunate. Uh, I started off in digital uh, with my good friend Vincent Versace helped me out, who had been into the printing technical end of it longer than I had. So right off the start, I got, I got the right information. So I had the Epson printers in here, the 7800, the 20, the 2400, and, you know, the 8-ink technology is marvelous. Now, when it comes to printing up old 35-millimeter slides, uh, you know, i got to love the images because it's a pain in the butt. Um, when you scan a slide right off the bat, you've got all that uh, people call it noise or grain, whatever you want to talk about, that texture that I have to deal with that because the printers are so good, it pops out. So that takes time, and that takes TLC. A lot of my favorite images are ones that have been printed in magazines. And, you know, you sit there in a the loop, and you look at them. And, uh, in fact, the last month now I've been, I've been in this process looking at some of my old favorites that have been, have been sent out and come back from the printing process years ago because we don't send out originals anymore, just scans. And there's all these little minute scratches and marks so I scan them in, and that scanning process, man, you see every one of those. So I'm sitting there very carefully, uh, spending too much time really in Photoshop, but it's a, it's a, it's a love of the, the image and going through and cleaning them up so I can print them because the action printers are so good that any little flaw in that scan comes out like a sore thumb. So when it comes to printing, i rather print from original digital than from a scan. I know there's always a perilous question, but uh, especially with a photographer who shot as many images as you have, but do you, do you have a, a favorite image? Do I have a favorite? Yeah. Yeah, I have a number of favorites. One of them is of uh, a Kit Fox male in the winter, in a winter coat. Another one's of a Lee Spells Varial one that um, it was published the same month that the species actually listed as endangered, and when it was seen... Um, some people got involved in saving some habitat, so I was credited for helping that that species from coming from becoming extinct. So there's a lot of images like that 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 have a um, personal story behind them that make them very special. Great. I can't emphasize enough how fortunate uh, we have been to see and witness firsthand so much um, of our wild heritage, and not just see a little glimpse, but to spend lots of time uh, with this, this particular species and get to know them, where they call home, their plight for survival, 
and to to photograph that. You know, it, I don't care what anybody says. It's very difficult not to do all that and not get emotionally attached to that subject. And of course, when you photograph it, those photographs become you know your baby as well. Yeah, it's wonderful that you know we can create images that are beautiful and that are, are very satisfying. But when it can help change the world, even in a small way, I think it's it's a great gift. But uh, it's it's what's all about. Well, I like ending asking each photographer um, if there were one photographer that they would want to recommend to someone, who would it be, and why? You mean to go and learn from right now? Go learn who. Yeah, basically saying, hey, go check out this photographer's work and learn from just looking at their images at what's possible with, with the camera. Well, for me, it'd be real simple. It'd be Joe McNally. Uh, Joe is uh, an incredible storyteller. He is an incredible magician with light, and uh, the, his use of lenses is just uh, is mind-boggling. I've been very fortunate to get to know Joe really well for the last year, and uh, just my flash photography alone, I thought I had it pretty well wired, but I was an amateur, man, and uh, I've uh, learned so much from him that my flash photography has vastly improved. But uh, his whole philosophy, his eye, his creativity, and his boundless imagination, uh, you, can't, uh, you can't help but learn from him. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, uh, Moose. Uh, I think we all stand to learn a whole lot from, from you by either you know, visiting your website or reading your books or, or hopefully listening from this podcast. But I want to thank you very much for, for making the time tonight. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Moose Peterson. I know I enjoyed talking to him. And so I want to thank Moose again for, for taking the time to speak to me this week. And if you have any comments or suggestions about the show, please leave them at our website at thecandidframe.com or you can email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com. Till next time, this is Ryan X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>